you're a guest this morning, uh, either in the room or joining us online, thanks for uh, stepping in and entrusting us with your morning today. My name is Dominic, and I have the privilege of you know, leading this community and following Jesus, and we're really grateful and glad that you're here. Uh, and if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet, I hope I get to say hi to you personally today. Um, in fall of 2021, I got an email uh, from one of my former theology professors. His name's Gary Brashears. And uh, Gary was sending out an update on life just to friends and family and people that were a part of, of his community. Uh, after many, many years, literally decades of uh, being a theology professor, a mentor, uh, and a pastor to pastors, uh, Gary was sending us an update saying that he had been diagnosed with cancer uh, yet again. And this time the doctors were saying that, you know, they're putting kind of a, a timeline on his life. So pretty, pretty somber update, pretty sad news. Um, but with that news, in the midst of it, in his letter, uh, Gary wrote this. He said, Jesus is in the present. Look for him. He is easy to miss. Jesus is in the present. Look for him. He is easy to miss. See, Gary's steadfastness amid suffering, I know, comes from his cross-shaped vision for all of life his gospel-centered embrace of the reality of eternity. It's something that I, I long for. It's a vision of life that I long to grasp. It's a vision of life and an understanding of life that, that I, I personally long, long to embody as well. But I know because of my time studying under Gary and in mentorship and those various things of, of knowing him over the years, uh, I know that it's a vision that he's acquired and an understanding and a faith that he's acquired only through always taking a deep and consistent contemplation on who Christ is and seeking to know him more fully, more deeply in every area and aspect of his life. The way that Gary lives is with a vision that calls us to remember that it's the crucified, the resurrected, and the ascended Christ that is here with us now, even in the midst of the uncertainty, even in the midst of the turmoil, even in the midst of the, the what-ifs of life. And that actually Christ is here present and what he's doing is he is moving us forward towards a future and a hope and a reality where there will be no more evil. And because there will be no more evil, there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more cancer in Gary's context and maybe some of ours as well. And it's this way of the cross, it's this cross-shaped life that the whole scripture speaks about and that in this season we, we want to spend some time to look at. Uh, as Kalsu shared in Community Life, we, we are already preparing and thinking about as a team uh, Easter. It comes early this year. It's, it's Sunday, March 31st. Throw it on your calendar if you haven't. But if you're familiar with, with Easter and the season of preparation that comes before it, uh, there's a season that's called Lent. And that starts this year on Wednesday, February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day as well. But we as a team just begin to think and look about going, what, what is it that, that we want to engage in as, as we begin this new year and this series that, that leads us up to an Easter that comes quickly? And the, the heart and the desire was to say, we want to take time to look at the way of the cross. We want to take time to slowly and, and intentionally look at uh, the journey of Jesus to the cross to consider, in a sense, Gary's words, where and how is Jesus present where and how are we being invited to look for him? And where and how is he actually easy to miss? Because I'll be honest with you, Jesus in my life sometimes is easy to miss. 
I'm so busy rushing and looking and doing and producing and all of these things, managing, shifting, all the stuff. And I wonder how often I actually miss Jesus. And so the invitation of this series as we look at the way of the cross, actually the heart of it comes out of uh, what's called the Stations of the Cross. Some of you may be familiar um, with Stations of the Cross. If you've ever gone to uh, typically like a Catholic retreat center or some other you know, denominational retreat centers, uh, they, they have what's called the Stations of the Cross, and it's these 14 stations. Uh, most of them come out of biblical um, stories. Some of them come out of the oral stories of the early church. And basically each of these stations is presenting yeah, a, a, a time and a space for us to contemplate and consider one of the stops of Jesus' life within the last days and even the last hours of his life. And I believe that the invitation that we get in the Stations of the Cross is to do exactly that. It's to make space and it's to take time to allow the different aspects of this journey on the way to the cross to speak to us, to remind us of two things, how Jesus is with us and actually yeah, how easy he is to miss because that's what we're going to see as we look through a number of these narratives. Jesus was there present, but so many people in that day and in that time missed him. And I, I don't want a life where I miss Jesus. I want a life where I understand and I'm aware of how he's present and how he's at work and how he's inviting me to walk with him. And so that's the heart of, of this series and this journey. So over the last weeks, we've kicked that off. And this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 26. Um, in, in terms of stations, this would be station number three, and it's where Jesus is condemned before the Sanhedrin. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to, to open it and look at it with me. If not, uh, the passage we'll be reading will be on the screen. Um, and God's Word says this to us this morning from Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 57. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and they said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and they struck him and they slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So the broader context here is that Jesus has entered into Jerusalem uh, with his disciples to celebrate Passover. The assumption is that he has celebrated it the last number of years with his disciples, but there was something unique and special about this time that he entered Passover. As he sat with his disciples, we know that he instituted the Lord's Supper, that maybe for the first time as he had Passover, he pointed his disciples' eyes to the reality that he was going to be the Passover lamb, that the bread and the, and the cup represented his body that would be broken for them. And at that table, there was one who sat among them named Judas, who would betray him. And last week, Vicky taught about that in, in the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane and, and then the, the betrayal. And so Jesus has already been in the garden. He's already wrestled. 
He's already asked the Father to take the cup, and the answer was no, but God gave him his presence, the promise of his presence. He goes into the garden then, and he remains there, and all of a sudden, coming at night, are a legion of, of soldiers. The Roman soldiers come, and they take him, they arrest him. Jesus surrenders, and so that's where we are now, is that here it is in the middle of the night, and they take Jesus to Caiaphas' house, uh, which probably was a, was a palace. And I want to talk about Caiaphas for a minute, just so we can understand what's going on here. Caiaphas, we're told here, is, is, is the high priest. And so as the high priest, there's two things that would be true about Caiaphas because of the day and the time that it was. Uh, if you remember that Jesus' life actually takes place, the whole of it, under what's called Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, which was about a 200-year period in, the, in this time of history where Rome occupied and, and ruled the, all the land. It was a wide and vast area, and it was about 200 years where it was this Roman occupation, and basically imperialism was, was, was taking hold of the land. So the, the Israelites are there, the Jewish people are there in Judea, but they're under the occupation of Rome. And so Caiaphas would have been appointed, actually, by the Roman government to be in the role that he was. And so that's where it means two things about him. It means that he was, on one hand, the political leader of Israel, and his role was to keep the Jews peaceful. He was to keep them basically under the obedience of not only the Jewish law, but also the Roman law, so that Judea could remain part of this Pax Romana, so that it could be part of the success, part of the economy, part of everything going on. Don't disturb the peace. His second role then, though, and, and more from, from God's perspective as the high priest, is that he was the religious leader. And his role was to oversee the religious leadership. So the scribes, the Pharisees, the council that's spoken of here, the Greek word for that is Sanhedrin. Some of your texts might have that word. And there was about 70 members of that. And his job was to oversee them, make sure that they were fulfilling their roles and their responsibilities of, of keeping the, the uh, temple treasury accurate, the sacrifices, the rituals. And the high priest, so Caiaphas in this case, his most important duty actually was to conduct service in the temple on the Day of Atonement uh, and to present that offering. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But if you want to put that picture up here, this is potentially what that scene looked like. You see Jesus in the middle, having been arrested in the garden, now taken here and in the middle of the night. We don't know if they have all 70 members of the council present. They say to have a quorum, they needed at least 23. So you can imagine there's at least 23 men in this room around Jesus in the middle of the night and he's standing there before them. And their whole goal with Jesus in that night was to condemn him. Now in case the word condemn isn't clear, condemn is this. Condemn means to publicly express complete disapproval of someone in order to put them to death. The whole goal of this public gathering in the middle of the night was to publicly express complete disapproval for Jesus in order that they could put him to death. And Jesus stands there. This council and Caiaphas is trying to find anyone among them. They probably were doing this for days in advance that would bring false testimony, false witness against Jesus. And we're told that they found two that would come forward and they would say, hey, this man said, and they take Jesus' words completely out of context. They take Jesus' words and they completely twist it. The words he spoke in John chapter 19, where he said, this temple I will tear down and I will rebuild. And what he was talking about was his own life. But they found these two witnesses that would come and say, yeah, Jesus, he's part of his goal, part of his ministry, what he wants to do. He wants to tear down this temple. He wants to tear down this system. He wants to destroy, in a sense, the Pax Romana. 
And they got them to say that and bring that here. And so as Jesus stands there before them, Caiaphas says, these guys are saying that about you. What do you say? And Jesus says, nothing. He stands silent in the face of his accusers, silent in the face of those who he knows are there to condemn him, send him to death. I wonder and I question, what is it that allows Jesus to endure this? Because the reality is this actually isn't the first time that Jesus sat or stood in the face of people who though he had nothing to hide, though he was telling the truth, though his life and his ministry was to come and bring the love and goodness and the reality of the kingdom of God, people that wanted to kill him and do it in a public manner. I want to read real quick a, a, an account for you in the, in the Gospel of Luke that, that, that shows this, that, that gives us another picture of what Jesus endured on his journey to the cross. But this was at the very beginning. This is Luke chapter 4, and so this is actually after Luke has, excuse me, as, as Jesus has stood up in the temple and he's, he's read from the scroll of Isaiah that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him and he has come to bring uh, sight to the blind and set captives free and, and bring a year of jubilee. Like all the good things, all the powerful things, all the, the world sh- like transforming realities of the kingdom. Jesus is saying, I'm here to bring that. And, and here Luke gives us this account. It says this. It says, and he said to them, the people around him, friends, neighbors, those close to him. He said to them, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zephthah in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue, his local synagogue, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of town and they brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is right at the beginning of Jesus' three-year ministry. Now the account that we have now where he stands before Caius is at the end, towards the end of his three-year ministry, days before he goes to the cross. I give you that picture to show you that it was probably throughout the whole time, throughout the whole three years. Jesus endured this type of treatment, this type of twisting of his words, this type of abuse of his physical body, this type of rejection, this type of standing publicly in a place, knowing people were there listening to him, but not necessarily hearing him, seeing him, but not knowing who he was. And their goal was to publicly disgrace him, point out how despicable he was, and kill him. My question to you is, how do you endure that? And I would propose to you that just saying, well, he's the son of God. He's God in the flesh. I don't think that's a sufficient answer. I think that actually will leave us wanting. It will leave it and make it so that, yeah, he's doing this. He endures that just because he's God. But what I'd propose to you is that Jesus is able to endure this type of treatment because of the secure identity that he has in his relationship with God. See, Jesus understood that he was the covenant son that he had covenant relationship with God 
and also that he held kingdom responsibility, that he had the empowerment from God. And it was the security in this identity as a beloved son, as a beloved child, and as one who was to represent the kingdom that allowed him to stand there even in the face of condemnation for three years straight, that he's able to stand there and understand who he was, to stand silent in the midst of people twisting his words, to stand physically and not lash back out and respond with hatred, nor anger, nor vitriol, all the things that were coming back at him. And what I propose to you is that when we think about what Jesus did for us and what he has done for us and where it was ultimately that he identifies with us, I think often we think about it's just the cross or it's just the resurrection. But the power of actually looking at through these stations of the cross is realizing and understanding that it was his whole life and in particular moments like this where Jesus looks at us and says, I identify with you. I stand there with you. Granted, I don't think anybody in here has probably ever been in a place where you've actually faced true condemnation. Meaning somebody was bringing you into a room to publicly disgrace you, ultimately to the point of putting you to death. Right? Has anybody ever experienced true condemnation? No. But we do live in a cancel culture, don't we? Where you say the wrong thing, and you don't give enough context Somebody takes your words out of that context and they put it up there and go, let's cancel this person because they don't understand. Or we live in this culture right now and we're heading into a political year where everything is so politicized, everything is so divisive, everything is so divided, and in the middle of that you go, ah, where and how and what, ah. And I think it's these moments of Jesus' life actually that can give us strength and encouragement and understanding of how do we navigate this? How do we navigate times that are so polarized? Times that can be so toxic in terms of communications, environments that feel unsafe, that feel unwelcoming, that feel unkind. Where we might not be physically being smacked in the face like Jesus or spit on like Jesus, but that same sense of feeling. I look at Jesus in this and how he endures it. And I'm grateful again for the example of the way that he held on to the truth of his covenant identity as a son and also his identity as a kingdom representative and understanding what he was called to do, who he was called to be, and how he was called to represent the kingdom. Last week, Vicki, in her teaching, I love, talked about this, the fact that um, in the garden, we didn't see Jesus engage in fight nor flight, right? But that, that there was a third way. That the way of the cross and the way of Jesus is a third way. There's always an alternative way in which the gospel would compel us and empower us to act. And we see Jesus do that same thing here. He acts in a different way. It's not fight, it's not flight, and it's actually not freeze. I don't think he's silent because he's frozen. But he's standing confidently in the love and the security of who he was and what he knew he was called to do and called to be. And I think that speaks and can minister to us in our day and in our time. See, the good news about the way of the cross, the good news in all of this is there's two key elements that I, that I want to just look at with you here. See, when you walk the stations of the cross, one of the things that you're actually invited to do is to, again, pause and look at these, these accounts, these interactions of, of Jesus on his way to the cross, and to remember the depth of the love that Jesus pours out on us. And in this case, and in this scenario, looking at Jesus standing before the high priest, 
one of the things I think that we're invited, that I sense, at least I feel I'm invited to remember, is that Jesus is actually our high priest. And so let me talk about that for a moment. See, I'd mentioned earlier that the, the high priest, one of his most important duty, not only just being the political leader of Israel or the religious leader, but his most important duty in all of that was on the Day of Atonement. Is that once a year, the great high priest would go and he would uh, give a sacrifice and he would take then the blood of that sacrifice and he would go into the Holy of Holies. He would go into the mo- innermost sanctum of the temple of God. The place where the, the, tabern- the, ca- the covenant was in the tabernacle. The place where there was this mercy seat. And what he would do is he would take the blood from the sacrifice, a perfect lamb, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. The place where God's presence dwelled. And in doing so, what the great high priest was doing was he was asking God for forgiveness, not only for himself, but for all of the people for that whole previous year. It was the most important duty, the most important job that he had. And the irony is that here we see in this, the great high priest standing in front of Jesus, the perfect and spotless lamb, and yet he didn't recognize him. Jesus was in his presence. Jesus was in his midst but he was easy to miss and he didn't recognize that it was Jesus. We have the gift of standing on this side of the cross and knowing and understanding that Jesus is our great high priest. And our great high priest is nothing like Caiaphas. Our great high priest has already gone and he has made the once and for all sacrifice himself, the perfect spotless lamb. His blood has been shed, his blood has been sprinkled. And Paul writes it this way in Romans 8, chapter, chapter 1. He says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews in, in chapter 4, verse 15, writes it this way. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize or empathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. My point is this, church. Again, this, this, this conversation, these stations, this journey of looking at the early days of Jesus' life reminds us that it's not just the cross, it's not just that place where Jesus identifies with us and took upon himself, but it's here as he stands before the great high priest, he being the great high priest, that he identifies with us too in that. I believe that he stood there and he took all of it, yes, because of his security and his identity as the covenant son and a kingdom representative, but he also stood there in that place and took all of it for you and for me, relating to us in what we carry in now. Again, I don't know where you stand now. I don't know where there's places where you feel the condemnation, where you feel people twisting your words, where you feel... I remember being in undergrad at the University of Oregon down in Eugene and being out there and people finding out on my lacrosse team that I was a follower of Jesus. It was my very first year of it. And my buddy Jeff and I were talking about, hey, we're going somewhere. And, and just the vitriol and the mockery that we, we, we faced as 19, 20-year-old kids. I remember years ago when I'm working in the corporate world, talking with somebody, and, and they were hurting, and I said, hey, can I pray for you? And one of my other coworkers going, prayer, what the hell is that? Like, what good is that going to do? And just feeling there the, the, the embarrassment, the shame, if you will, the condemnation of my work community. I remember a few years ago sitting at dinner table with my family, half my family are not followers of Jesus, and speaking up about something that I believed was true about the kingdom of God, and my own brother looking at me, in a sense, condemning me. Church, I don't know what you face, what you carry in the places where you have felt that. 
But I believe this station, this snapshot of Jesus' life here reminds us that Jesus knows and he understands. He is the great high priest who not only sympathizes but empathizes with us in our weakness, in the vitriol, in the hate, in the shame, in the things that we feel. In every respect, he has been there and he did it for us. And wherever you are, whatever you are sensing, whatever you are feeling, however this relates to you, Jesus is in the present. Look for him. He is easy to miss. And as our great high priest, guess what? As Paul said in Romans chapter 8, again, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so as Jesus comes and he stands with us in the workplace, stands with us in the home, stands with us in our neighborhood, stands with us wherever we are. He comes and he stands as our great high priest, and he does not look at us with condemnation, but he looks at us with belovedness. He looks at us with love. He looks at us with a peace to impart and an identity to say, child, that's who you are. Stand in that truth. Stand in that reality. And the empowerment as well to encourage us and empower us to represent properly the kingdom of God in that moment. Whether it's online or it's in person. Whether it's in your school or in your neighborhood. Whether it's among family or among strangers. Christ stands with you as your great high priest and he looks at you and he bestows on you an identity of beloved that you can stand securely in. Because you didn't do anything to earn it. It's his love that grants it to you. And it's that love in that moment to empower you to stand with the peace of Christ even in the face of those who would come at you. To slap, to mock, to ridicule, to spit, to condemn you, to make you want to go away. Christ stands with you to say, I'm here with you and for you. I think the other good news and the beautiful thing that I see here in this station or in this journey is that Jesus as the great high priest sees the image of God in everyone. They failed to see the image of God in Christ and to see God in Christ, but Jesus saw the image of God in everyone in that room. I appreciate what the, again, the author of of Luke shares with us in chapter 23 and verse 34 as Jesus is hanging on the cross. So this is now days later from this. But Jesus stands there or just hanging there as these same people that were in that room and others were standing there at his feet. And Jesus' words to them were this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, I think Jesus standing in the security of his identity, again, allowed him to embody the kingdom in a way that was radically countercultural and different than everyone around him. Jesus saw the image of God in each of those people, even though they didn't see it in him, And he was able to extend to them forgiveness. He was able to speak over them in freedom, whether they understood it or received it or not. It reminds me of what the the author of the Gospel of John said, right? John 3.16, which many of us know, but also verse 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why and how? Because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, to put it to death, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That the world through him might receive newness of life. That the world through him might be restored, repaired, put back together through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, 
through the kingdom of God which he came to usher in, though it was missed. See, church, in the journey of these stations and looking at these accounts leading up to it, what we see is that God became man and he walked the way of the cross not just so that we could be saved or we could be set free someday, but that so we could experience newness and wholeness and freedom of life now today so that we could choose to live into the way of the cross even though Christ went there already ahead of it before us. He made that choice and he invites us to choose into it as well. But we don't have to go into it and go to it to the extent that he did on the cross. He already went there for us. And we get to receive the love. We get to receive the grace. We get to receive the freedom and the empowerment of that freely as we look upon him and not miss him in the reality and in the midst of the things that we're going through. He stands with us in it. He sits with us in it. He speaks to us in it. And I think his invitation to us, again, in this journey as we enter Lent, we head into Easter, which is common, which is typical. Like we've been there, we've done that for however many years I've been following Jesus. But I think his invitation for us church this year is to remember Jesus is now in the present. Look for him because he's easy to miss. I want to invite you to think about a couple things as we, um, yeah, just wrap up this morning. A couple things I want you to reflect on. What's one practice for you this week that you can engage that will help you to remember the truth of how Christ stands with you as your high priest and he stands with you in love? That he doesn't condemn you, but that he loves you. He doesn't stand with you the way that others do, but he stands with you in a unique way, in grace, and to empower you to, again, remain, remember your identity and as, a, as a beloved child and as a representative. What's one practice that can help you remember this week that you are the beloved? Second question I'd have for you is this. Is there anyone that you need to forgive? Is there anyone that you feel condemned by? That, that you feel the sense of, I've been publicly embarrassed, I've been publicly held out there. Again, maybe in person, maybe online, whatever. That you need to now walk in the way of the cross and forgive them. Release them so that you actually can experience the freedom of life with Jesus in your identity as beloved. In addition to that, the third question I invite you to consider is this. Is there anyone that, if you were honest, in your heart and in your mind, you actually hold in condemnation? And God is inviting you again to take the way of the cross and to not view them any longer in that way, but to view them as an, as an image bearer. That you need to replace back on them the reality and the truth of who they are as those created in the image and likeness of God loved by God, worthy of grace and of dignity, and to have your heart changed from a posture of condemning, wishing they weren't around or exist anymore, but a heart that says, I want them to experience the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. I ask these questions because, again, each week we're going to be considering and looking at the fact that there's, there's our natural response, and then there's the way of the cross. This morning, I think Jesus wants to remind us again of, of the reality that he's present with us. <laughs> he's in our midst, but he's easy to miss. And so are our ears attuned, are our eyes attuned, are our hearts attuned to his grace, to his love, to his presence with us and the things that he wants to empower us to do in this season. Let me invite the, the band to come up and, and lead us in worship and in taking communion. And as they do that, I just I want to pray for us. Um, 
before we worship. So Jesus, this morning we we thank you for uh, your love and your goodness to us. We thank you that all that you endured throughout your life, not just the cross, but all of it, every day of it, every moment of it, I believe you walked through it with us in mind, that, that we were in your heart, that we were present to you, that you went there and you walked that way of the cross out of love, out, out of grace, out of a desire to understand, relate, know us, and that we could know and understand the reality of your presence with us now in all of the trials, all of the things that we go through. Jesus, thank you that you are our great high priest and that in you we have no condemnation. You've already paid the price. You've already made the sacrifice. You've already gone into the presence of God and your heart and desire is for us to be in that presence of God with you, that you've made the way. So God, this morning I pray that you would remind us as we come to this table where the cup represents your, your blood that was spilt. And, and the bread represents your body that was pierced and beaten and bruised for us. Remind us that you did that out of love for us. You did that out of love for the world. You did that that we might be restored. You did that that the world might be restored. So Jesus, remind us of, of our identity as your beloved. And speak to us this morning of the way that you would call us to go as we leave this place, to, to go in the way of the cross to enter into this world, to not bring condemnation, to not retaliate the things that are out there in culture, but to bring the new way, to bring the way of your love, to bring the way of your grace, to bring the way of dignity, to bring the way of restoration, to bring the way of reconciliation, to bring the way of renewal and new life. Jesus, would you empower us to that end today? As we come to the table, may we not miss you but may we experience your love. I pray this in your name. Amen.